The Bible presents us with a grand narrative of God's redemptive work in the world. But for many of us, parts of the Bible can seem confusing, disjointed, or even irrelevant. Today, Tim Keller is teaching on the big story of the Bible, examining how each part fits together to reveal the character of God and His purposes for us. After you listen, we invite you to go online to gospelandlife.com and sign up for our email updates. When you sign up, you'll receive our quarterly newsletter with articles from Dr. Keller as well as other valuable gospel-centered resources. Subscribe today at gospelandlife.com. The scripture this morning is from Romans chapter 1. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God, the gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding his son, who as to his human nature was a descendant of David, and who through the spirit of holiness was declared with power to be the son of God by his resurrection from the dead Jesus Christ, our Lord. Through him and for his name's sake, we received grace and apostleship to call people from among all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith. And you also are among those who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, to all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be his saints. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. I am obligated both to Greeks and non-Greeks, both to the wise and the foolish. That is why I am so eager to preach the gospel also to you who are at Rome. I am not ashamed of the gospel Because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. First for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed. A righteousness that is by faith from first to last. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. This is the word of the Lord. Every week we start by saying that we are tracing out the storyline of the Bible because the Bible is not so much a series of disconnected individual stories, each with a little lesson or moral telling us how to live. It's primarily a single story telling us what's wrong with the human race, what God has done to make things right, and how it's all going to work out in the end. And we're drilling down into three places in the Bible. Uh, We've drilled down into Genesis 1 to 4, where we learned something about what the Bible says about what's wrong with us. And now we're going to drill down into Romans 1 through 4, uh, perhaps the the single most comprehensive and packed place where through a letter of St. Paul, we learn what God did about it. And verse 16 and 17... All scholars and students of Romans believe verse 16 and 17 is Paul's way of putting the gospel in a nutshell, his message in a, in a, a kind of a thesis statement. And therefore, it's an extremely important statement, and I want to meditate on it with you until you, or to help you, break through 
Now, that's kind of an odd statement, breakthrough. Let me tell you why I use the word. Uh, Martin Luther, uh, founder of Protestantism, actually, uh, tells, uh, later in his life, he told a story. It was a preface to one of his, uh, in, the, in the preface to one of his collections of writings, he wrote a little uh, reminisce of a great experience he had. It's also called the Tower Experience as a young man. And uh, many people would call it his conversion experience. And it all had to do with Romans and Romans 1, 16 and 17. And he wrote, I greatly longed to understand Paul's epistle to the Romans. But nothing stood in the way more than that one expression, the righteousness of God. Because I took it to mean that justice whereby God is just and deals justly in punishing the unjust. My situation was that, though an impeccable monk, I stood every day before God, feeling like a sinner, troubled in conscience, and I had no confidence that my merit would assuage him. Therefore, I did not love a just God, but rather hated and murmured against him. Therefore, night and day, I pondered. And then I saw the statement, the righteous will live because of faith. And then I grasped that through gift and sheer mercy, God justifies us through faith. Thereupon, I felt myself to be reborn and to have gone through open doors into paradise. When I discovered the distinction that the law is one thing and the gospel is another, I broke through. That's interesting. He had this breakthrough, and what he means is he was completely transformed. His thinking, his heart, his life, everything by these verses because he pondered and pondered until he broke through. And I would like to help everybody here break through. That is to say, if you haven't, if these two verses have never done to you what they did to Luther, I'm going to try to show you three factors you have to grasp if you're going to break through. And if it has, if, if, if this, these, this, the ideas here, these verses have transformed you, I'd like to give you, by telling you the same three things, of course, since you're all in the same room together, um, how you could help other people who are open, how you could help them have a breakthrough. There's three factors that have to do with breakthrough. You have to grasp, according to, I think, this text, the form of the gospel, the content of the gospel, and the power of the gospel. The form, the content, the power. And I'll give you tests along the way. So I'm being very focused. How do we break through? First, you have to understand the form of the gospel. Now, you can see, uh, especially if you read all the way through Romans 1, 1 to 17, that the word gospel shows up more here than any other place in the book. Um, in fact, uh, I think it may be the, uh, the, the word gospel shows up more in these verses that per, you know, per, per phrase than any other place in the Bible. So we have to ask ourselves, what is so important? Why this word? And the word gospel, as most of you know, is a Greek word that we transliterate evangel, E-V-A-N-G-E-L, angel. The good angel. What's the angel? Well, angel. We look at the word angel, and in English, of course, right away we think of wings and things like that, which is wrong because the word angel means a herald. And what actually isn't the very heart of the word gospel is the news media. Did you know that? News media? Okay. How did news 
about great historic events get distributed back in those days? What was the news media? No print, paper, no audio, video, radio, television. Well, then how was news, what was the media for the news? And the answer, it was heralds. That is, when everybody's back in in the town because they know there's a great military battle that's being fought miles away. So they're behind the barricades. They don't know what's going to happen. What happens when the general achieves a great military victory? How do we spread the news? He would send heralds, the angeloi, an angle, which is a message or a herald, the news. And the herald would come in to the town and declare the news, victory, you know, and then he'd run to the next um, uh, town square and proclaim victory, and then everyone would go back home with joy. And if that's at the very, very heart of the word gospel, if that's what the message is, the Christian, the essence of the Christian message is news, good, joyful news, then this is the difference between the gospel and every other philosophy of religion. The gospel is not good advice about what you must do. It's primarily good news about what's already been done for you. Something has already happened. See, other religions say, if you really want to meet God, do this, 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 this. It's good advice. Only Christianity is not good advice, but primarily good news about something that's already been done for you. Now, this is, this is test one, and we've talked about this actually not too many weeks ago, so I won't belabor it, but it's crucial. One of the breakthroughs is to realize how utterly different Christianity is because it's good news, not good advice. If I ask somebody here in New York, what do you think the essence of Christianity is? What does it mean to be a Christian? The average person on the street would say, well, I think it means to try to live like Jesus and try to love your neighbor, try to obey, you know, follow, live by the golden rule. Now, I want you all to know, I think that is an incredibly great idea. Let's all do that. That would be okay. Let's, I mean, I'm all for it. But that's not news. That's not the heart of Christianity. It can't be because it's not news. Is that news? Is that news about what has been done for you, outside of you, for you, that inflicts in you such joy that you finally can live by according to the golden rule? See, that's Christianity. Something's happened outside you, something momentous. It's happened outside you, for you, and that's what inflicts into you life-changing joy. So now I can live according to the golden rule. But to say, well, you know, uh, being a Christian is the golden rule, that's not news, and therefore there's no breakthrough. See, breakthrough, transformation, comes like this. If you say to somebody, here's the essence of the Christian message, you need to live like Jesus and love your neighbor and according to the golden rule. Now, there's only three responses to that. One is you say, sure, I knew that. Shrug, indifference. The second, like Luther is, oh, that's very hard. I can't do that. Crushed, discouraged. And the third is the, the Pharisee says, I do that all the time. See, you know, so either shrugged or bugged or smug. <laughs> but no breakthrough. No breakthrough. No, oh my word, I never thought of that. See, that's what happened to. When Luther broke through, he said, this is a paradigm shift. Sorry, it's a cliche, but it's far worse, more than that, but it's not less. So here's my question. Here's the first test. I don't know what you believe, but whatever you believe about God or how you ought to live, is it mainly about you or is it mainly about what he has done? Is it mainly about you and what you must do or mainly about him and what he has done? Which is it? 
See the breakthrough? The gospel is news, not advice, number one. That's the form. Second thing is we have to understand the content. And the content of the gospel is that very spot where Luther meditated and meditated, where he says, for in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that comes by dia through faith. Just as it is written, the one who is righteous through faith, that's the person who lives. And he was thinking and thinking about this until suddenly he realized the righteousness of God is a righteousness that comes to me and I receive by faith. And that opened everything up. Now, if we want to understand this term, which isn't a very uh, ordinary term, it's a technical term in a way. It's a term that Paul uses, though, so we need to try to figure it out. Changed Luther's life, changed mine. We're justified by faith. Now, right away, let's, let me use an illustration to show you. I'll use two illustrations. The second one's considerably more poignant than the first. The first one, though, think about this. Whenever we talk about being justified, we're talking about not a change in the object, but a change in the relationship to the object. Not a change inside the object, but a relationship to the object. So, for example, if you're speaking to me, and you say something, and I say, hmm, justify that statement. And what do I mean? I'm not saying change the statement. What I'm actually saying is, I, it's hard for me to accept that, do something, say something, to change my relationship to the statement, to change my regard for it, uh, so that I can accept it. I'm not saying change the statement, help me get into a new relationship with it, because I'm about to reject it. Justify that statement means change my regard for it, do something. That is actually what the word means, especially at certain points here, but also in Romans 5, where Paul says in verse 2, since we're justified by faith, we have access to this grace in which we stand. And the word stand there means to stand in the presence of a great God or a great king or judge. And this is what Paul is saying. Jesus has done something so that God looking at us, in spite of everything wrong with us, okay, Jesus has done something to change God's regard for us, his relationship to us. Jesus, something has been done. See, that's the news. Something has been done so that now the Father looks at us and loves us and delights in us and accepts us. Our relationship has been changed. It's not so much something happened inside because then that would all be about us. That wouldn't be gospel. It would all be, well, you have to do something. It's about something that's happened outside of us that's changed God's relationship to us. What is that? To me, the second factor in what brings a breakthrough over the gospel is when you realize that the gospel is about more than just forgiveness. Follow me, please. It's about more than just forgiveness. Please don't think I'm saying something, there's anything wrong with forgiveness. But most people think that's what this is. That's what salvation is. That's what Jesus did. The idea is because Jesus died on the cross... When I do something wrong, I can ask God for forgiveness, and I'm forgiven. Isn't that wonderful? Yes, of course it's wonderful. It's more than wonderful. But I want to show you here for a second, it would not be enough. And it's way less than what's being promised here. Yeah. Because, see, if it's true that that's really salvation, that because Jesus died on the cross, now when I ask for forgiveness, I'm forgiven. God forgives me. Whites the slate clean. You realize what that means? It means that even though he's forgiven me for what I just did wrong, my relationship with him is still up to me. Because actually, in a sense, God said, hey, I just forgave you for what you did. I'm not going to hold that against you, but now you better get it right. If that's all forgiveness is, it's not enough. 
You know, for example, here's a man, let's just say, and he's in prison. What is going to get him a new life? Well, you could say the first thing that's going to get him a new life is pardon. A governor writes a pardon and he's out. Wow, he's got a new life. No. He's just back to where all the rest of us slobs are. He's not in prison. And now he's got to get a job and now he's got to work. And he's a long haul. He doesn't have a new life yet. Well, you say, well, what more do you want? I'll tell you what more. The salvation of the gospel is not so much like simply getting a pardon to get out of prison. It's besides getting a pardon, forgiveness, it's also like getting the Congressional Medal of Honor on top of it. It's a negative and a positive. Uh, There's a uh, TV series called uh, uh, NCIS, and it's about uh, Navy Criminal Investigative Services. It's a cop show amongst military and criminal investigators. And there's a really great um, episode that was done about four years ago, and the main character was played by Charles Durning, the great actor, I think. And in it, it's about a poor, broken-down old man, ex-Marine, and it's played by Charles Durning. He's in his 80s. He's broken down. He's kind of dotty, you know, and he's accused of murder. He's accused of murder. And at one point, two huge, big, beefy Marines and a snarling Navy lawyer comes after this poor little old man. And they're about to arrest him, you see. And they're overshadowing him. And here he is standing in their, you know, in their presence accused. But as they stand and they're about to, you know, cuff him actually, a friend of the old man pulls his tie aside. And under it is the Congressional Medal of Honor. Because on Iwo Jima, he had, uh, he had been found, uh, he had done acts of extraordinary valor and bravery beyond the call of duty and had been given a Congressional Medal of Honor. And when he pulled that aside, the Marines and the snarling lawyer immediately saw what it was. Instead of looking at the poor little old man, the accused, condemned man, they saw that Medal of Honor, and they immediately snapped to attention and salute. They're in awe, just like that. It's very, very good drama, and it's very, very uh, kind of moving to see. And it is just an image, however faint, of what Paul's talking about here. You know, one of the verses that I always quote to you, but I never explain, (laughs) is 2 Corinthians 5.21. God made Jesus sin, who knew no sin, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. What's that mean? God made him sin, that knew no sin, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Well, think. On the cross, what does it mean to say Jesus was made sin? God made him sin. Does that mean God made him sinful? That God put sin in his heart so he became greedy and angry and, and, and violent? No. He was up there forgiving his enemies. I mean, no. He, he was up there loving his father even when his father was turning on him. Absolutely. It didn't mean he became sinful. I mean, he was treated as our sins deserve. He was given the treatment that our record deserves. So what does it mean to say that when you give your life to Christ, our sins are put on him God made him sin who knew no sin that we might become the righteousness of God in him. In him. What does that mean? It can't mean that automatically the minute you become a Christian, you become righteous in your, in your heart any more than he became sinful on the cross. No, 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 no. What it must mean is that we are covered with his medals. We are covered with his glory. 
We're covered with all the awards and the medals and the, uh, that, that his valor and his cosmic bravery because he took on evil and he went down to death. And all that he deserved is now on us. And here's where the illustration doesn't quite work because that old man basically was suddenly given all this, uh, you know, even though he was condemned, he suddenly, they, they suddenly saw his medal, which he had won in a, in a, a former life. But in our case, the medals on us were won by Jesus in a former life. And now the whole universe salutes us. And now God himself delights in us. We have become the righteousness of God in him. Now, you see the test? Do you see where the breakthrough comes? The first breakthrough is when you see it's not advice but news. The second breakthrough is when you see it's not just forgiveness, but it's being clothed in the righteousness of Christ. It being put on, it's a righteousness from God is given to me. My gift, no wonder. Luther said, oh my word. That's incredible. It is incredible. And so when you ask somebody, I do all the time, if I say, hey, are you a Christian? And the person says, well, I'm trying. That shows they have no idea about what Christianity is about because Christianity is a standing. We have access to this grace in which we stand. See, it means you have no idea about what it means to be a Christian. You're still stuck back in the idea it's good advice. Or, if, you know, some people say, well, I hate to call myself a Christian because I don't feel worthy of the name. Of course you don't feel good enough. But you're in him if you understand the gospel. And he's always good enough. He's utterly good enough. We're covered with his medals, covered with his trophies, covered with his badges and banners and ribbons and glory. Looking for a new way to deepen your faith and understanding of Christianity this summer? If you are, we'd like you to consider the New City Catechism Devotional. Based on the historic catechisms of the Christian Church, this devotional offers 52 weeks of thought-provoking questions and answers that explore the foundational beliefs of the faith. Each week includes a scripture passage, a prayer, and a brief meditation that will challenge and inspire you. Commentaries are written by contemporary pastors such as John Piper, Timothy Keller, and Kevin DeYoung, as well as historical figures such as Augustine, John Calvin, and Martin Luther. The New City Catechism devotional is our thank you for your gift to help Gospel and Life share the hope of Christ's love with people all over the world. So request your copy today at gospelandlife.com give. That's gospelandlife.com give. Now here's Tim Keller with the remainder of today's teaching. And, you know, some people will say, well, you know, that's interesting. I guess it's the Luther types, religious people, gosh, he was a monk. How much more religious can you get than that? I guess there's people there who are always filled with guilt and shame and they're religious and, they're, and they need this. They need this idea. No, it's not just them. Oh, no. I have talked to an awful lot of people recently who have lost an awful lot of money. And you know what? One of the things you can see, in fact, sometimes they tell me, is it was a lot more than money. They didn't know. They didn't know. There's a disorientation at the center of their being. They're not sure who they are. You know, there's a complete loss of identity. There's a complete loss of confidence. You know why? Because that money was their righteousness. See, irreligious people don't use the word righteousness. But as we said a couple of weeks ago when we were talking about Cain and Abel, no human being can assure themselves. We cannot assure ourselves of our value and worth. We've got to get somebody outside approving us, acclaiming us, declaring us worthy, declaring us people of value. And so some people do it through, I want to look beautiful. Some people, I want to make money. Some people, I want to achieve. I want to, whatever. But the fact is, everybody is desperately struggling for righteousness. 
And here's the weird thing. Everybody's righteousness, if it's not God's, is going to be blown away. Recession is one way. But it's going to happen. Old age is another way. Everybody's righteousness is going to blow away. Unless this is upon you. Now the second breakthrough then, that you see, it's not just negative forgiveness, wiping the slate clean, but getting the cosmic medal of honor. Uh, you know, being accepted in the beloved having the righteousness of God put upon us in Jesus. Being legally righteous, even when we're actually unrighteous. And we'll see more about that. Thirdly, the last thing you've got to do, if you're really going to understand and break through, is you've got to have a sense of the power of the gospel. Not just the form, not just the content, but the power. And Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God unto salvation. I guess in my case, of all these, you know, even though it's, a, it's brief, 16 and 17 is brief, this is my favorite part of this nutshell. Because, see, it's not saying that the gospel brings the power of God or it results in the power of God, you know, or it's a means to the power of God, does it? Well, no, it doesn't. What does it say? It says the gospel is the power of God in verbal form. And therefore, when I, when I believe it, when I hear it, when I understand it, when I grasp its propositions, its, its, its meanings, its words, to the degree that I actually get this gospel into my life, to that degree, the power of God is coursing through me. It is the power of God. And therefore, the way you know you're beginning to understand the gospel and breaking through is instead of it just being a set of ideas, you begin to sense it being a power. How is that so? Well, here's a couple ways. First of all, one of the ways you know you're breaking through, or you're at least perhaps breaking through, or got a chance of breaking through, is you feel its offensiveness. Notice, connected to this idea of the power of God, he says, I am not ashamed of I am not ashamed of the gospel. Now, when, when you say something like that, say, I'm not ashamed of her. I'm not ashamed of him. I'm not ashamed of that. That means there's a whole lot of other people that are, or you wouldn't have said that. Okay. There's a whole lot of other people that are offended or they think it's crazy. And I want you to know that everybody, everybody who hasn't broken through or isn't on the verge of breaking through thinks the gospel's crazy. Everybody. I've had two churches. One in a very blue-collar, traditional, conservative place, small southern town, and the opposite place. And here's what's so interesting. Everybody's offended by the gospel. Because if you go down in Virginia, in Hopewell, Virginia, where I was a pastor, everybody's hardworking, they're all religious, you know, even the atheists are Baptists. Uh, you know, everybody. I mean, even the atheists, the God they don't believe in is the Baptist God. It's, you know... Everybody's religious, everybody's very traditional, everybody's hardworking, everybody's conservative, okay? And they're offended by the gospel because they think it's too easy. I'll never forget, one of the first people I shared the gospel with was a woman right across the parking lot behind our church. It was a very broken down area, you know, rental property and, uh, and uh, uh, bad rental property, by the way, uh, and uh, uh, trailer, trailers and things like that. And there was a woman there, she was a very unhappy woman, her name was Joy. And, uh, but in a southern town in the, in the late 70s, uh, she was divorced. Uh, she'd had, she had two children. One was, I think, uh, with no husband. One was with her former husband. 
She was living essentially in poverty. She was a mess. She was disgraced. She was, you know, ashamed. And I, we went in there, three of us sat down, and we shared what I just shared with you, almost exactly the same thing. And she couldn't believe it. She says, you mean in spite of everything, you know, he can accept me? I remember one of the things we talked about was I said, well, you know, if you really understand the gospel, that means that the minute you believe in Christ and ask God to accept you because of what he's done, uh, the minute that your sins are put on him and his righteousness is put on you, God loves you and delights in you as much this very second as he will a billion years from now when you're perfect and glorious, you see, and that you can't even look at you without sunglasses. And I said, he won't love you any more then than now, any less now than then. And she couldn't believe it. And she, was one, and she cried. She thought it was the greatest thing. She embraced it. She believed it. Now, a week later, we came back. You know, follow-up. Sat down. She was really upset because she called her sister. Sister was a very hardworking woman. You know, husband, three, four children, you know, upstanding citizens. They went to church. They were, you know, good people. And when Joy called her older sister up and told her, you know, she was born again, she was saved, you know, God loved her and all that, the sister said, what are you talking about? It can't be that easy. He says, you have to work for this sort of thing. You have to work very hard, years of self-discipline, years of moral effort. I don't know what kind of God that pastor is talking to you about, but I have no respect for him that he would just take somebody like you like that. It's too easy. You see, it sounds really very dignified to say, I can't believe in a God. I have higher standards than that, except, you know what? That sister had built her identity on being the good daughter, and Joy was the bad daughter. And it was incredibly self-justifying to say, you can't be, it can't be that easy. We, we have to take the, you know, the gospel was in danger of destroying that wonderful dysfunctional family system in which Joy was the sick one. See? And so we had to go right back with the gospel, and it did. I think it did. But you see, in a traditional conservative culture, it's too easy. Now we come up here, where everybody's liberal and sophisticated and secular. And up here, it's offensive, not because it's too easy, but because it's too simplistic. And here's why. Because, you see, everything here, everything here is ambiguous and, and difficult and, and nobody's sure. And, see, we like philosophy here. We like ethics. We like... Uh, Discussions, and we have the here's the pros and the cons, and we, we get together and we have discussions and forums, and everybody's a little bit right and everybody's a little bit wrong, and nobody's really sure, and then we can go home and live any way we want. It's a great, great system. <laughs> because who's to say? And the idea, the clarity of the gospel, the absolute clarity of it, you know? I mean, they, they, they even like religion better because you know, you're always trying and you're trying, and you're never quite sure that, you know, whether you've done the, the clarity of it. Here's this first century carpenter. He dies. Everything changes if you believe in that. You believe in that, and then you're in. You don't believe in that, and you're out. Oh, my gosh, the clarity of it, the simplisticness of it. Don't you see? Liberal or conservative? Blue collar or white collar? North, south, east, west. The gospel is absolutely unique. It's absolutely on its own. Everybody hates it. It makes absolutely no sense to anyone. It contradicts, it contradicts every system of thought in the world. It contradicts the heart of every culture in the world, every worldview. It's completely on its own. It offends everyone. And see, whoever you are, you've got to come from somewhere. You've got to come from north or south or east or west or conservative or liberal, something. You've got, you know, you're human beings, so you, you know, you have some, and therefore, unless you felt the offense of the gospel, you don't know yet what it even claims. Unless you've wrestled with it, struggled with it, you don't even know what's in it. You couldn't know what's in it. And when you begin to feel it, 
and you begin to wrestle and struggle, then you're at least got the possibility of breaking through. And by the way, the gospel is not just from a person. Pardon me, the gospel is not an academic thing. It's not a set of bullet points that we're trying to get you to memorize. It's from a person to a person, and therefore it feels personal. When you're really beginning to hear the gospel truly and understand the gospel, you start to sense there's a power dealing with you, disturbing you, upsetting you, maybe during this sermon, I hope. Maybe when you think about it or talk to a friend about it, do you find the gospel upsetting you, kind of dealing with you, you wrestling with it, bothering you? I would rather somebody came to Redeemer for a couple weeks and uh, was so revolted that they had to leave. At least they were feeling the power. Rather than just say, well, that's interesting, but I don't have much time for that. Then you're absolutely, absolutely in no position to ever have a breakthrough. So you have to feel the power of it. You have to feel the offensiveness of it. But here's the other way in which is the power. Some people would say, well, all that matters, I suppose, is that you, you know, now that you receive the righteousness of Christ, that's all that matters. You know, now you're fine. Doesn't matter how you live. No, 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 no. You know, what's so amazing about, about Paul is he's able to get sound gospel theology everywhere. Look at verse 7. To all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. At the beginning of the memo, to, from, re, he's already got the gospel in there. You know why? He says, what is a Christian? To all who are loved by God and called to be saints. Look at that. What is a Christian? Not primarily someone who's living in a certain way. The first is you're loved by God. Your relationship's been changed. Something's been done to justify you. You're loved, but if you're loved and if you know you're loved, then you're called. That means you're invited. That means you're attracted to be saints, which means to be holy. You never, ever, ever have the righteousness of God put upon you without at the same time finding it's beginning to develop in you. You never, ever, ever, ever are loved by God in spite of your bad character without that starting to change your character. You're never justified except that you automatically begin to get sanctified. The righteousness of God will never be put upon you without it develop within you. And if it's not developing within you, then you haven't really received it upon you. And that's the reason why Paul could look at uh, Peter in Galatians 2, where Peter is beginning to, uh, his old racist sensibilities have begun to come back, and he's not eating with Gentile Christians. He won't even eat with them. And what does Paul say? Paul doesn't say, Peter, you broke the no racism rule. Even though there is a no racism rule, Christians shouldn't be racist. But what he says is, Peter... You say you're justified by faith, not by works. You say you're a sinner saved by grace. And how can you have, be superior to any other race? You say you've got the righteousness of Christ on you, but you're not, you're not living in righteousness, and therefore you don't, it's not upon you if it's not beginning to develop within you. If you are loved, then you are called, you're attracted into holiness. You want it. You long for it because I want to look like the one who did this for me. I want to please the one who did this for me. And if you don't want to please, if you don't want to look like the one who did this for you, you're right, then it's still not personal. You know, you don't really still don't know what's happened. Now, one of the great things I love about, uh, there's a passage in Matthew 11 where John the Baptist, in prison, about to be beheaded, send some messengers to Jesus. And the messengers say, are you the one who is to come or should we look for another? 
John the Baptist is doubting. And I can understand why. You know, he declared Jesus the Messiah. He said, you know, behold, the Lamb of God takes away the sins of the world. But everything's going wrong. He's in prison. Wait a minute. You're the Messiah, and I'm with you, and I'm about to get my head chopped off. And uh, uh, are you really the one who is to come, or should we be looking for somebody else? He's doubting. And Jesus so nicely says, go back and tell John the Baptist, the blind see, you know, the poor have good news preached to them. He gives them some arguments why he's the Messiah. And then he says, and say this to John, blessed is he who finds no offense in me. So what I loved about that is instead of Jesus saying, how dare you question me, I'm the Messiah. Instead, he says, let me give you some answers. And I want you to know that I am not offended by people who are struggling with my offensiveness. Good luck. Hope you get through it. It's not very easy. I hope you get the blessedness of people who finally get through that offensiveness and break through. What a man. He's not offended that we struggle with this offensiveness. He's not all upset about the fact that it's hard. He says, you know, here are some answers to questions. If you have any more, please come back. What a savior. What a man. Go to him. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you for... um, the gospel, and uh, we thank you that we were able to look these few weeks together at what St. Paul has said that has changed so many lives, that's changed minds, changed so many here. We ask that you would help us to break through, and we ask that you would help us to grasp the form, the content, and the power of the gospel in such a way that we do, so that we, knowing that we're loved by you, sense your calling into a whole new life. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to today's teaching from Dr. Keller. We pray you were encouraged by it. To find more gospel-centered resources like today's teaching, you can sign up for email updates at gospelandlife.com. That's gospelandlife.com. This month's sermons were recorded in 2008 and 2009. The sermons and talks you hear on the Gospel and Life podcast were preached from 1989 to 2017, while Dr. Keller was senior pastor at Redeemer Presbyterian Church.